Right now, it's difficult because I don't know if you guys have followed, but our, our president has just been arrested for money laundering and fraud and all sorts of stuff. So it's it's getting I mean, very, very as bad. A, as a boss of an, I can relate to that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We we can relate to the, the mean, bad presidents. Hello guys, yeah. welcome to Podzibus episode 14 and today we have a special guest with us, Adrian from Rabona TV. So hello Adrian, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. I am looking forward to having this conversation with you guys. We are really super excited to have you and today apart from Adrian, we also have on our panel our modmin panel who is consisting of Shikhar, Sagnik as well as Wahaba. Um, so without further ado, I want to go ahead with the very first question that we have for you, Adrian, that is, how are you in Canada and how did you get to follow the Portuguese league and Benfica? Uh, that's basically because of my parents are from Portugal. So they immigrated here to Canada in like the 60s, basically. Um, so I remember my first memories of watching football with my dad was euro 2000 and even those they're like very very spacey like i barely remember what happened but i remember watching portugal and uh nuno gomes and that goal that he scored against france and so that's how i got into football basically and then um just following him i mean he left for fiorentina that season after that tournament i believe but he came back to benfica and that's how i got into benfica and you know so the portuguese connection plus nuno gomes equals benfica for me well, that's great to hear. And I remember your video on Benfica and how, you know, at the European competitions, it was cursed and uh, how it went bad downhill. So what do you think will be the future of Benfica going from here on? Right now, it's difficult because I don't know if you guys have followed, but our, our president has just been arrested for money laundering and fraud <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. So it's it's getting I mean, very, very as bad. A, as a boss of and I can relate to that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We we can relate to the the I mean, bad presidents. Are... <laughs> um, so yeah, I I mean, right now it's all sort of up in the air. Manuel Rui Costa has taken over as our president at the moment. Um, there's it's there's no doubt everyone knows that Benfica produces a ton of talent, but it's just a matter of having the infrastructure behind it, you know, from the board to the president and everyone that are all working in the same direction, which hasn't really been the case in the past uh, since Vieira has been in charge of Benfica, basically. So. Hopefully, this is a new sunrise for us. And um, once we get a new president in there and people who are honest and want the best for Benfica and not just to make money off of it, then we can start moving in the right direction and maybe become a European power once again. I hope. I know that that's a long shot because it's the Portuguese league and, you know, there's the difficulties there, but I hope that we can get back to it. And, um, you know, like sometimes we had a back and forth on Twitter regarding this, that um, Benfica and, you know, other clubs in Portuguese league produce a lot of great talents. And most mm -hmm. of the time, these talents get poached by big clubs. So what is your opinion? How can any team in the, in the Portuguese league flourish in this scenario? I mean, I think that ultimately it comes down to the finances in the league. They just aren't there yet. Um, and in Benfica's case, I mean, I think I saw that we had about a net profit of 400 million pounds or something like that in the last decade, which is just insane. But when you have a dishonest president running the club and people who don't have Benfica's best interests at heart, then where does that money go? I mean, the whole investigation we're sort of finding out there now. But And I think that that's sort of an unfortunate reality of a lot of the teams in the Portuguese league. We're now hearing about how, you know, uh, Porto's president has was potentially involved in a money laundering scheme as well with Jorge Mendes. I don't know if you guys heard some of those Florentino Perez leaks that came out yeah. recently. Yeah. Those yeah, are yeah. mostly comical, but there's some uh, some other things in there that, uh, that are quite concerning. So I think that that's an issue in the Portuguese league in general. There's a lot of corruption, unfortunately, which is too bad because it's such a hotbed for producing talent. Um, and so when the interests aren't to keep the competition within the league, when the interests are to sell players on to make a profit, and then that's not really reinvested in the league as much, then it's never going to be an attractive option for top talents to come and play in the Portuguese league. It could be in the future, and I hope that it is. Hopefully, this is the first domino that sort of falls. But... Um, 
yeah, at the moment, it's just it's very difficult to hang on to talents when there's, you know, a more attractive option abroad and more money, to be honest. That's quite understandable. And um, uh, Adrian, basically, uh, Benfica has been producing talents for a long time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess it's all started from there was a guy named Ola John, I guess. You must remember him. Sorry, sorry say that again. O- Ola John. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And after that, the academy has produced plenty of talents like uh, uh, Fiorentino Lewis, it has produced Pero, it has produced Nuno Tavares, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, but most of them are basically failing outside the, the Portuguese state. Uh, do you credit that to this uh, uh, corruption scandal you're talking about? I think that that's Any definitely more? part of it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, man. Um, there's there's a piece of it that, you know, the big elephant in the room, it's not even an elephant in the room. Everybody knows that Jorge Mendes plays a huge role in all of this and sort of overinflating the prices of these young Portuguese talent who some of them, there might be a really good player there, but they're just taken away from their home way too early um, and they have to adapt to a new league. They have to adapt to a new culture and they just ultimately end up flopping. That's happened far too many times. It's it's sort of becoming a, a bit of a, not a habit, but a trend. Um, yeah. for every one that goes on to succeed, there's three or four others that go on to flop. And it's really unfortunate. So I think that partially what you're pointing to, the corruption scandal, I think that George Mendes plays a big part in that. Um, and partially, I think that there's just, you know, we live in a this football age now where players are poached away as soon as they start to show a little bit of a glimpse of talent. We saw that with Renato Sanchez from Benfica. He played one full season of first-team football with Benfica, and then he was gone to Bayern at 18 years old. Of course, there was always a huge chance that he was going to fail there, you know, and um, thankfully he's come around now and he's becoming a top talent once again. But yeah, it's 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 sort of a, a mix of everything. There's a bit of corruption. There's a bit of, you know, just the what football is now in which talent is bought at such a young age and so early for big money and the pressures that come with that as well. So, Adrian, um, do, you, uh, do you put Jao yeah. Felix in that category? I think I do in a sense. I think, um, you know, I think he's another player who he played even less than full, a full season of full team of uh, first team football with Benfica. He sort of started to play regularly once Bruno Lage took over at Benfica in early, early January. That's when he really started to play. Yes, Rui Vitoria played him a couple of times, but he only started playing regular first team football in that, you know, what is it, four or five months from January to May, basically. So I absolutely think that that was sort of the case with him. Um, I think that also going to Atletico might not have been the best move for him in hindsight. It's not the type of football that's conducive. We saw, you know, there was quotes from Thomas Lamar that was saying playing on the wing, which was sort of where Juan Felix would play. He would sort of drift out wide for Benfica, but sort of these creative players, it's very difficult. It's sort of few and far between that they actually succeed in Simeone's system. When he was playing with three at the back, it was worth Jean Felix was getting more involved in the ball. Thomas Lamar was playing centrally as well, and he was more involved with the play. But since then, he, you know, he, he reverted back to Simeone 4-4-2 bunker ball. And uh, it's just it's just not conducive to a player like Jean Felix. So I think that there's a mix of the pressure of the price tag. There's a mix of, you know, leaving too early and then just not really being a fit at Atletico Madrid. Hey, Adrian, uh, Sagnik here. It's uh, great to have you, uh, first of all. And so, uh, talking about Benfica and talking about talents, so, like, a lot of players have uh, risen from the ranks of Benfica, right? Like, Bernardo Silva, Jao Felix, you just mentioned, uh, Di Maria, Oblak, a lot of players. Those are, like, big names in uh, European football and world football right now. So, who, according to you, is can be the next huge talent who can, like, shine in European stages and big stages right now? Who is in Benfica or in a, a Portuguese league right now? Um, in Benfica in particular, I would say that it would be Gonzalo Ramos. He's a young striker that we have that has, <laughs> unfortunately, George Mendes, or George Jesus, sorry, getting my Georges mixed up. George Jesus, our coach, is sort of known. His legacy is he's the guy that messed up Bernardo Silva and sent him packing to AS Monaco. And of course, it's contested a little bit, but there's a famous story where uh, George Jesus wanted Bernardo Silva to play at left back. And that's why he ultimately ended up leaving and going to Monaco, et cetera, et cetera. There's more to it than that, of course. But um, he, so George Jesus is not really known for incorporating the young talent that we have produced at Benfica. And so that's sort of been the case with Gonzalo Ramos. This is a guy that came on in the last like five minutes of a match and scored two goals from two shots when he came on in his like debut. Um, he's has very limited time, but he scores goals. And so I 
think and I hope that this season will be the season where he gets more opportunities because he's shown time and time again, whether it's for the Portuguese under 21 side or for Benfica itself, when he's given the opportunity, he scores. But I think in the league wide, um, I would say that probably... Uh, Gonçalves from Sporting is probably going to be the next big export. Uh, you saw that he did so well at Sporting this past season, helped them to win the title, and uh, he's already been linked and been called the next Bruno Fernandes and stuff like that. So I think that he'll likely be the next big export, but we'll see. So, Irene, uh, one of the main motivations to you know to invite you to the to our pod was to introduce some Portuguese football to our audience. Um, mm-hmm. Our group is mostly like people from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and others in like subcontinent, and they follow mm-hmm. mainstream clubs like Barcelona or Manchester United, and play Premier League and La Liga, and some even the German Bundesliga. So, what would be your pitch to uh, like ask them to you know follow the Portuguese league, and what would be something that would entice them to watch the games? I think that, you know, as Sagnik sort of touched upon, there's there's a lot of talent that is coming out of the Portuguese league on a regular basis. You know, you're seeing guys go from from Porto to big clubs, from sporting to big clubs, from Benfica <laughs> often. And some of that is thanks to Jorge Mendes, as we talked about. Some of it might not be warranted, but I think ultimately we've seen with the Portuguese national team, it's a very talented side, especially going forward. Um, and now we're yeah. starting to see at the back as well with Ruben Dias, etc. So I think that if you were to watch the Portuguese league, you would see, well, one, it's entertaining in a sense because there's always so much controversy. There's always corruption, accusations, etc. So it's fun in that sort of sense to watch it because it's sort of... Uh, you know, they call it a palhaçada in Portuguese. It's sort of like a, a joke. There's often like politics at play and there's always accusations of corruption. So that's fun. And then also just as far as, you know, scouting young talent, there's a lot of teams that have that are producing great footballers. Um, so I think that if you wanted to sort of be on the on the cutting edge of scouting out talent for the future i think that watching portuguese football is a must really because whether it's through benfica or sporting or even some of the smaller teams like you know pedro gonçalves who went to sporting he was playing at famalicão before that one of the teams up in the north so yeah i think that that's one of the big draws and of course you know when fans are in the stadiums the matches between benfica and porto and benfica and sporting it it almost has a south american feel in that you know the cities are <laughs> Unfortunately, in some senses, sort of trashed on before the match day. There's all sorts of tactics to try and dissuade the other team from playing well. There's all sorts of uh, intimidation tactics that are at play. So I think that those those derbies are very much underrated. Um, not all of them are derbies like Porto and Benfica. That's more just a rivalry. But um, they're, they're very underrated as far as the explosiveness at, of them European wide. Well, that was that was really great to hear. Um, there's a question I want, like I wanted to ask you regarding your creative process. Um, I'm a, mm-hmm. I follow all of your videos actually. I love all your videos, and you. one thing I like about your videos is your weekly weekend recaps when the club season is going on. And I would like to know how is your typical schedule during club football during the week when you get to get like have have they collect news from all the top five leagues sometimes even your bonus leagues, and you know you don't just um, like follow a single like top five teams or something like that you follow almost all the teams. So how do you manage your time and how do you get to like gather all the information for your videos? It's a big process, so my weekends are pretty much taken up with that and. Obviously, I don't think that anyone's expecting that I've watched every single match that's happened on the weekend that I talk about. So typically, the more in-depth that I go when when I'm speaking about a match is how much I watched of it, basically. Um, But I I try to do a bit of a rotation. So if I haven't spoken about Newcastle for a while, then I try to, you know, one weekend, I'll try and speak about Newcastle or whatever they're doing. Or I like to look at what's happening in the mid tables as well. So like in Spain, you know, just because Valencia has fallen out of the top 10 doesn't mean that I'm not going to follow them or something like that. Um, So it's, man, it's a, it's a bit of a balancing act. It's sort of, it's sort of dependent on what's happening on that weekend as well. Right. Like I'm not just going to talk about what's happening uh, mid table in the Bundesliga. If the two teams are just drawing and nothing's really happening there and there's not really a story there to talk about. So it's sort of a balancing act of, talking about teams that I haven't spoken about in a long time, speaking about what's the most interesting stories 
And then also, man, there's just a little bit of an element of my own general interest as well. So you guys know, or you might know that I have uh, sort of an affinity to certain teams like Real Sociedad or Atalanta and in the Bundesliga. I mean, I, I don't even know who I follow there. I had a little bit of a thing for Wolfsburg this season. They, I found them interesting. So, yeah. yeah, there's a bit of interest for me. It's, it's sort of a mix of all sorts of stuff. I couldn't say that I have a strict recipe for the weekend recap yet. So, Adrian, we also had asked our members in our group as well as in our, our followers on Instagram and Twitter for some questions. And we have a list of some really interesting ones. Um, so the next questions are like from that list. So the first question that was asked is there, there are different times. Often we compare, you know, players who are performing really well nowadays to mm-hmm. players who have been legends of the game. Like you sometimes you compare like, yeah, someone to like Pele or Maradona or someone like that. So what kind of metrics do you think? Firstly, I would ask, is this comparison usually valid in your in your opinion and the second part is if it is valid what kind of metrics do you like compare them against because over time even the rules have changed and the definitions of dairy things like offsides or what what usually goals are i mean yeah so yeah you understand the question right so yeah so yeah how do you compare someone across generations I think it's really difficult to be honest with you. I really, um, if you, if you want to put me to sleep, then you can ask me like to name the best player of all time and who's the goat and stuff like that. That's a good way of putting me to sleep immediately because I think, I think that it's just, I don't know. I just, I don't really, I don't really see the point in it really. I think that all players sort of offer something different and they can all be enjoyed for those different things that they offer. But as far as, you know, I think that you're right in saying that it's really difficult to compare what someone did in the sixties and seventies versus what someone's doing now with how sports science has evolved, how the definition of being a professional football player has changed. You know, you hear about guys as recently as in the early nineties, having a beer and, stuff like before games or smoking cigarettes in the changing room like it's just completely different so to put i would be interested to see how a top professional from the modern game would do in the 60s or 70s because yes they would be more athletic but they would also be kicked up and down the pitch and they would be absolutely destroyed in that regard so i think that I think that there's a few players that everyone can sort of agree were the cream of the crop from their generation. You're talking about the Cruyffs and the Maradonas and the Pele's and Beckenbauer's and guys like that. And then you compare them up to the top ones like Ronaldo and Messi and, you know, all of the guys from the modern era as well. But as far as using a metric to decide who's better, I, one, I don't really like doing it because it's so difficult. And two, yeah, like you said, they're up against different opposition. They're up against different professionals. They're up against, you know, a different standard of play, a different style of play. It's far more physical back in the day. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult, man. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a terrible answer, but I, I just, it's something that I try to avoid. Yeah. Mostly I feel like these comparisons are kind of unwarranted as well. Yeah. Yeah. So another question that was asked was your thoughts during the international break that went just now uh, about the Copa and the Euros. So mm-hmm. what, according to you, were the underrated teams and players and what kind of expectations that people can have from them for the upcoming World Cup? Um, underrated in what sense would you say? Someone who you wouldn't expect them to win, but they've actually like overperformed their expectations kind of a way. Okay. Okay, I think that Denmark definitely went further than I expected. I knew that they would be a good team, but they maybe it's because it was my lack of watching them and qualifying. They definitely went above and beyond my expectations, not only with, I mean, Grant, of course, they're going to have that team unity after the horrible, horrible thing that happened at the beginning of the tournament with Christian Eriksen, but just their style of play, the way that, you know, I saw someone sort of call them like an Italy light version, the way that they were pressing, the way that they pass and move the ball around, the technical players that they have, like Robert Mela from Atalanta. I knew he was good, but he looked like a different animal for Denmark. Mikkel um, yeah. Damsgaard, I'd, I'd never really watched Mikkel Damsgaard before this tournament, and he was fantastic. I don't know if it was just one of those, you know, we see it all the time. A guy has a great tournament, and then they sort of fade away. But I hope that he continues on that trajectory. So I think that Denmark is a team that, that we really need to take seriously and sort of the, the depth of their talent really, really surprised me. As for Copa America, 
to be honest, I didn't watch much of it. So I can't, I can't really say because I was so busy with Euro um, that I didn't really have the time to watch the Copa America. I watched, you know, the finals and the semifinals, etc. But, you know, as for the group stage or anything like that, I couldn't really speak to that. But if I was to choose one from Euro, I would say that Denmark would be up there. Um, any others, though? Czech Republic surprised me with how far they went. Um, Netherlands, I mean, I, I expected more from the Netherlands in a sense, but then there's the Frank de Boer tax as well. So, you know, it's 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 sort of an unfortunate situation for them because they certainly do have a very talented side, but I think that the guy who's running them is just not adequate. And if they had a better manager there, like, you know, as Ronald Koeman was doing fantastic things for the Netherlands, they were one of the teams that I was very scared of because they're turning into this great nation, a uh, great footballing nation once again, I should say. Um, but since De Boer's been in there, it's, yeah, I'm getting way off track, but sorry. <laughs> but since De Boer's <laughs> been in there, he is, uh, he certainly turned things around. And now he's gone. So we'll see what happens with the Netherlands now, because the talent is there. Yeah, so um, the next part of that question was regarding the upcoming World Cup. So do you have any teams you would be rooting for? Uh, teams I'll be rooting for are definitely just Portugal. Um, well, not just. I mean, I have soft spots for like De- Denmark now. I think everyone sort of has a soft spot for Denmark now after what they've done at Euro 2020. Um, but a team that I think is going to be very scary at the World Cup 2022 is going to be England, actually, which I think a lot of people are sort of loath to say because of, you know, the fans and the media of England do make it difficult to like them. But when you look at the yeah. squad... Even Gareth Southgate, like, sure, he gets things wrong. Um, He's not the best manager, and he has some things to learn when it comes to game management, substitutions, sometimes, you know, his decision-making when it comes to setting up the team, etc. But when you look at the squad and you look at how he does as a man-manager, England has a really terrifying team, I think. Um, Their defensive record was excellent. Granted, you can say, you know, they didn't have the toughest run-up, and they didn't, just like in 2018. But... Yeah, I think that England is a team that if they continue to develop, they're so young and they're so raw and they have so much attacking talent that they didn't even utilize in this past tournament. Yeah. I think that they'll be they'll be a contender. They'll definitely be a contender in this next tournament for sure. And Spain, yeah, and Spain the, as well. Go ahead. Yeah, Spain. Yeah, I was asking about Spain too. I, like you would agree to the statement that uh, Spain will enter the tournament as probably one of the favorites, World Cup 2022. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think that if they... <sighs> You know, I was confused to not see Iago Aspas with Spain because I feel like they could have used someone who could finish and someone who can, you know, pull the strings as well. He was the only guy, I think, in La Liga that had... Sorry, this is probably an incorrect stat, but it was something like that he's one of the only players that was available to Spain that had double digits in both goals and assists. And he wasn't called up to the Spain national side, which was very, very confusing. But I think that Mm -hmm. Luis Enrique is clearly a very good manager and the talent is not an issue there. It's just the finishing that let them down. It's just the finishing. Maybe you could argue that there were some defensive lapses at times, but overall, Spain should have been winning those games. I mean, they had a, they scored 13 goals, and they, and I think their XG differential was like they should have scored 13 more or something like that. Like it was really, really crazy at Euro 2020. So Spain is another team that I am nervous about. Yeah, Adrian, uh, just like you mentioned, England's uh, advantage, like power is their attacking players. Like they didn't utilize their attacking uh, strengths to the like to the core. Like after they scored the goal in the final, I think they should have been more attacking, but they just held back. Like, mm-hmm. what do you think about that? They just yeah, that I, they literally come to them. They let. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Sagnik, because I think that I think that you know bringing on Rashford and Sancho to take penalties, they should be bringing those guys on to try and steal another goal from Italy earlier in the match, in my opinion. Jack Grealish should be coming on earlier in the match. I think he only came on in extra time, didn't he? Um, I could be wrong. Maybe it was towards the end of the 90, but I thought it was in extra time. Um, But I feel like, yeah, they should have utilized that much, much more. Jane Sancho, you know, he started one game. He made an appearance. He made two appearances, I guess. Three appearances. One start. Um, Yeah. I think that Southgate plays a little bit of a timid type of football. And if he evolves from that and he starts utilizing and trusting those attacking players a little bit more, then England's going to be a very, uh, very scary team. So I would move on to the next question that was asked regarding the economies during, like after the pandemic and how it has led to you know, the, all the culture around ESL, the European Super League and 
um, also considering the fact that currently Paris, the PSG is actually doing doing really good transfers, and other teams are even struggling to retain their own players. So, what is your opinion on the overall UCL ESL thing? Do you think was it necessary? What was it? Someone someone has mentioned was it inevitable? So, what's your opinion on the whole thing? Um, yeah, I think that it was something like that was always going to happen because the way that some of these top clubs are like, for example, you guys know very well that Barcelona's wage structure just isn't sustainable at all. Um, And eventually it's going to catch up to them. Same with Real Madrid. I think the same sort of thing is happening with them. Um, They have financial issues. A lot of the top clubs, you know, Juventus is a little bit thin on cash as well. Um, So I think that that was inevitable that that would happen eventually. And I don't, while I don't love it, I wish that, I don't know. I just wish that I just wish that financial fair play and all of these things would work somehow. But with these clubs fighting to be the best and fighting to have the biggest players and the biggest brands at their club, it's it's always going to be a who can outspend who and club and banks are always going to loan out money to these teams and try and bail them out. But essentially, they're not bailing them out. They're just putting them further in debt, as we saw again with sorry to bring up Barcelona again, but taking out that 500 million credit line that they're going to use a hundred million for for transfers or wages or whatever or sorry to pay out the wages that they owed to the players so it's just i think that it's just going to continue and continue and continue uefa will try to keep their monopoly um but it is interesting it is interesting that real madrid and barcelona and juventus haven't really given up on the esl yet i don't think that it's going to go away yet i think that it's going to come back in the future but i mean We'll see, because Florentino Perez seems to be the man that's really pushing for it, and he's getting a lot of bad press these days. So if he goes away from Real Madrid, will that ESL dream sort of die? It kind of feels that way. We have also seen that um, UFR kind of responded to the creation of ESL. They did. They even held back on sanctions on these these clubs, as well as they proposed a new format. And now they, we have even heard about them, you know, like removing the away goals rule and stuff like that. So do you think this will work? Will that be like potentially a solution anytime? Uh, getting rid of the away goals rule? One of them. And changing a format and allowing more teams to participate mm. and stuff like that. I mean, I hope so. I was definitely of the opinion that you should only make a change if it makes the competition better. So we'll see with that one because I personally like how the Champions League structure was. I really like the group stage and then you go into the knockout rounds. I think that it was perfect and it didn't need fixing. Um, So I think that that's one thing that I didn't love. Getting rid of the away goals rule. um, That's another one I didn't love. I've always been of the opinion that away goals, once you get to extra time, get rid of the away goals and it's just a straight who can score more from that point on. I think that away goals and extra time is a little bit harsh. Um, but getting rid of away goals completely, I think, you know, there's a lot of people that were making this big, a big deal about it, how it's, you know, this is another thing to benefit the big clubs and blah, blah, blah. I don't necessarily see it that way because it can, it can benefit the small clubs as well in certain stages. So yeah, we'll see. I think that they're, they're clearly, you know, with the changes that they made, they made them to the, uh, oh my God, my mind's going blank. What's it called? The European clubs, ECA. European yes, Clubs Association. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's the, it's the one that um, Agnelli was the head of. Um, but anyway, they made all these changes to sort of appease the European clubs to try and make them happy. So I think that UEFA is doing their best to try and make the all of the clubs happy. But whether it whether it works or not, I don't know. If there's more money coming in for the big clubs, then maybe they'll be happy because that's ultimately all that they're after at this point is they just want that big payout because, you know, Real Madrid and Barcelona, they definitely could have benefited from that big payout that they would have got from the ESL just for joining up. So, um, well, let's move on to the next question then. Um, one of the questions that was asked was, like, with the game ever evolving, do you think matters like statistics like XG and XA and expected statistics like these, do you think they make, they, are they relevant? Or do you think, like, is this something, you know, like, can this be evolved in any way to help analysts? 
Yeah, I think so. I think the fact that, you know, a lot of teams are sort of partnering with these statistics and analytics firms. Um, it's definitely, I think that it, it, you know, it gives them more in-depth data on why they're having positive outcomes on the pitch and how these positive outcomes are coming, you know, like when you have statistics like how Harry Kane's actions contribute to a dangerous opportunity for Tottenham or whatever. I think that these all help teams to zone in on where the positive outcomes are coming from. So I think that it will be something that's ever evolving and it's still relatively nascent in a sense, you know, it's not exactly an old, an old trend that has been developed. So I think that it's still at the beginning of sort of what it can do. Now we're seeing things like goal impact and, all these other sort of statistics that I don't even understand because it's a world that I haven't really dove into yet. But um, yeah, I think it's here to stay. And I think that a lot of teams, you know, I, I sort of follow the guys from like stats bomb and stuff like that. And they always talk about how they've partnered with certain national teams and how those national teams did well at Euro 2020. So maybe it's coincidental. Um, but I think that ultimately, I think that ultimately it is a good, something that works like Rodrigo DePaul, for example, is a guy who I've, I've had some Rodrigo DePaul propaganda on my Twitter for sure. And he, um, he just got his big move finally to Atletico Madrid. And this is a guy that was setting up, you know, countless opportunities for his side, but they just weren't being finished off. And that's a good metric to use that expected assist metric. That's something that in the past wasn't really quantified, you know? Um, So I think that, it's cases like that it can absolutely be beneficial in finding talent and finding these sort of i look to you know even in mls montreal impact or club de foot montreal as they're called now they've started doing a lot of scouting and signing a lot of players from kenya and all these markets if you want to call them that that weren't necessarily touched upon and there absolutely has to be something to that there absolutely has to be you know, a link between the data that they're finding and these talents that are going untouched otherwise. So, yeah, I think it's here to stay and it will only continue to evolve. And uh, talking about uh, XG, XA and other stats and the new world of data analysis in the world of football, mm-hmm. uh, basically players like Busquets and uh, Fernandinho, they play their whole career in an underrated way and they are basically rendered underrated throughout their career. Nowadays, with the evolution of stats, what do you think are the basis uh, through which we can judge and uh, embrace their playing? Um, sorry, it was really cutting out there. Could you just say that one more time? What, uh, in regards like to Fernandinho? Like how to judge players like uh, Busquets and Fernandinho, the defensive players? Yeah, I think that there always has to be a mix of the stats and sort of the eye test and seeing what's going on with the players on the pitch. Like Jorginho is another one who constantly is getting trashed for being a sideways passer, but we know that he's much more than that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I think that I don't think that stats are going to completely replace uh, sort of the opinion of what you see on the pitch. And I think that there's got to be a balance between the two. So guys like Busquets and, and Jorginho and Fernandinho, I think you mentioned it as well. These guys, I think will always sort of be, you'll see stats like their forward passing and, you know, how they break up the play and how their actions lead to an opportunity and stuff like that. But ultimately you can see on the pitch how well they're performing as well. I don't think that'll ever go away. So, I would like to ask you about Serie A because after Juventus won the title for nine straight seasons, Inter has made it this time. But they have lost some, like, they have lost their main coach, Conte, and even they have lost some crucial, crucial players like Hakimi. And on the other side, as we can see from Italy's win in the Euros, that they, Juventus have some good players like Chiesa and they even have. Diligent. So, what what are your thoughts on the CDA next season? Um, I'm very interested to see how Inter do with Insigne or Insigne. My God, Inzaghi as the coach, um, <laughs> because he does play a similar system, or he did play a similar system at Lazio with the three-five-two sort of formation. So, it won't be a far cry from that at Inter, but it's going to be about the mentality you know Conte is an absolute mentality monster and um, we'll see if his sort of values and that sort of fighting spirit that he instilled in a lot of players will continue on um, 
As for Juventus, it's really difficult to get a read on them because, of course, they have their old coach back, the boys back in town. So it's 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 going to be interesting there. And Chiesa has really emerged as a top, top international talent in the last, basically in 2021. The first half of his sort of Juventus campaign wasn't spectacular. But, um, you know, I think that Juve and Inter will be right up there. Milan, AC Milan is another difficult one to call because they're making really good signings. Maldini suddenly is doing excellent as far as signings. They are bringing on some older players, yes, but they tend to be a little bit more forgiving in the Serie A with the older players, as we see with, you know, Quagliarella having a great season a couple of years ago with Santoria. Ronaldo still scoring a lot of goals there. Zlatan doing well there. So Giroud could do well at AC Milan as well. Um, ultimately, I like what they're building. And of course, you know who I'm talking about next. Atalanta, I think they make great signings all the time. Um, I think that Gasparini is one of the underrated co- well not even at this point i think he's very well rated now i think that people have really awoken to how well atalanta are run the signings they make you know they have mela and gosens as their wingbacks like that says a lot right there um so i think that atalanta is always going to be in that top four fight and hopefully soon they can get a win but if i had to if i had to pick one team to win it i think i, I think i would go with inter again um, it's difficult to say, but I think I would go for Inter again. I think that Juve is just not quite there yet. Since we're talking right. about Serie what are your thoughts on Roma? Like, they have signed Mourinho mm. this time. So, yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that Mourinho is going to give them something that they absolutely needed, which was defensive solidity because they were just shipping goals last season. Um, I hope that he doesn't go too, too defensive. But I mean, what I would expect from him is maybe a good Coppa Italia run and then bringing Roma back into the top four question again and competing for the top four. I don't think that they'll win the the league this season. They definitely have a good keeper now in Rui Patricio. Um, It's unfortunate that they lost Spinazzola for the season or much of the season, at least. That's going to be like a seven to nine month injury layoff. So, um, yeah, I I need to look into Roma a little bit more because they're one of the sides that I always just they sort of fall by the wayside, um, especially <laughs> last season. They couldn't be any of the top 10 teams so or top eight teams or whatever it was that, that statistic. So I'm looking forward to watching them under Mourinho. And of course, Mourinho is always so entertaining just in the in the press conferences alone. So I think a lot of eyes will be on Roma now. Yeah. So moving on from Syria, and now we are back in La Liga. And uh, pointing towards La Liga, I'll, I'd love to ask you something about Barcelona because uh, most of our fan base are basically polarized on the fact that we play according to our philosophy. So I would love to ask you that should we stick to our philosophy or uh, we should move on with the modern football and try to make uh, successful signings on the basis of that? Um. Your philosophy being that you, you know, promote within like from La Masia and use young players and that kind of thing and play that sort of quick passing. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah a yeah. combination of both. Basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always good to keep your your identity. But I think if if the results are suffering as a result of that, I think that Kuman, you know, switching to the three at the back really did work wonders for you guys. Towards the tail end of the season, you had a great run where you're undefeated or on that winning streak. It was like... You guys can tell me how long it was. I can't remember exactly. Um, but but Barcelona was doing really well in the tail end. And so he that's something that I like to see from a manager where he's adapting and he's finding a solution to an issue that you guys had. Um, so if you can, I mean, I said in a recent video how I think that if, if your finances are hurting so much, then maybe you should just, you know, accept that you might not be as competitive, but promote from within La Masia and get some of those younger players. And I know that Pedri isn't a La Masia product, but he, I, he almost comes across as one with how he plays. Um, and, you know, Ansu Fati is another recent one, Ricky Pooch. So I think that there's definitely, there must be talent within that, within that academy that you can draw from. Um, and I think finding that balance is, is part of Barcelona's identity. Um, so I'd like to see that, especially if, if the finances are really hurting, then don't sign Depay and Aguero and all these guys and just promote from within. Yeah. And since you have talked uh, yeah, about um, Depay and Aguero, uh, like Laporta, despite the financial conditions of the club right now, has pulled off some really amazing signings and quite uh, meticulous signing, I must say, uh, in Depay, Aguero, and Eric Garcia and Emerson Real as well. So, 
how do you think they can be successful in the current system or how roman ronald kuman plays well i think that i think aguero is a natural you know you can fit him in and then sort of build around him and have messi play off of him or whatever i mean griezmann is the big question mark because it seems like he's on his way out there's those talks of yeah. him getting swapped to atletico madrid so if you take him out of the equation that does make things a little bit easier for kuman doesn't it um because it was sort of you had a whole bunch of players that wanted to play the same position at at one point. Um so yeah, I think that I think that Aguero you can fit him in anywhere but then you add Depay in and Depay is another attacking player that you know, I guess it's going to be he might move in the sort of I'll call it a Chelsea structure where it's the 3-4-2-1 um where you have sort of Depay and Messi playing behind Aguero perhaps. I could see that happening if he does go forward with this three at the back formation. Um and then the other one Emerson I guess I'm not super familiar but he's the guy that was at Real Betis, correct? So he's sort of like a wing back or a left back. Is that him? Yeah, he was a right right back. He was right back. Right back, okay. Okay. Yeah. So then where does Sergio Dest go? at that point you know it's i mean it's a good signing to make but maybe des will be played i guess they're planning des as a backup at left back to alba yeah maybe they're trying yeah. to you know create competition at different positions yeah which is always a good thing and can be beneficial for the squad so i think that they were good signings uh, garcia you guys were begging for a good center back because longley you just as you guys know <laughs> longley umtiti cannot be trusted and he cannot uh, be trusted umtiti. to stay healthy ex- either so you guys were begging for a center back so those you know aguero and garcia were absolutely necessary signings 100% um depay yeah you can make a case for it so long as you get rid of someone um and emerson i see no issues with having another solid defensive player that can is good going forward as well so um as we were like discussing about barcelona and la liga um as we have noticed that last year real madrid did not make any signings and um even like this year they have made a, alaba is a really good signing although they have shipped off ramos and atletico has made really good signings so what is your read on real madrid and what do you think la liga will be looking like in the next season um i think that losing sergio ramos is huge not only for on the pitch mind you he didn't even play much last season but i think that his presence and his leadership qualities is something that is going to be a massive loss for them i mean we saw at manchester city when vincent company left they just didn't look the same that next season and it wasn't simply because of what he did on the pitch but i'm sure in the locker room his presence is absolutely massive and it wasn't until you know ruben diaz and some of these other guys sort of stepped up that we saw manchester city look a lot more uh competitive as a team and and defensively solid at the back and organized. So I think that losing Sergio Ramos will be large in that way. David Alaba is certainly not a bad player. Um but I like him further up the pitch a little bit more or in a wide position. I don't like him as a center back as much, especially with, you know, and he won't play a 3 at the back. Ancelotti won't play a 3 at the back, but if he does play a 3 at the back, I don't like David Alaba at the middle of a back three. Um So we'll see. I also like I I hate to say it but I don't have a lot of faith in Carlo Ancelotti anymore. I think that since he you know, since that time at Bayern, it sort of was all went downhill for him. Um he was doing some okay things at Napoli. uh but that ended because of you know de laurentis and how difficult he is so i don't know i i don't have a lot of faith in carlo ancelotti these days i think that he was an excellent manager and you know maybe he'll make me look like an idiot for saying this but i think that real madrid i can't see them finishing in first this season um atletico madrid is difficult to get a read on because as i was saying earlier i liked when they were playing that three at the back and they were a little more attacking but then diego simeone went back to his 4-4-2 ultimately he has the last laugh because they did end up winning the league but they had a chance at having a 13 point lead at one point and they blew that and it was a very very touch and go finish to the season yeah. um so i i think that they made a great signing in rodrigo de paul um and they're always going to be great defensively and it's just a matter of them finding that balance in the attack which they seem to really really struggle with so we'll see what happens with them there um Yeah, I think that Atletico, I don't know that they'll repeat it, but it, honestly, I think if if Barcelona can somehow have some sort of miracle financially and figure out all of their signings and registry of their players, I think that Barcelona for me looks like the strongest team with close second being Atletico and then Real Madrid in third. Um because Real Madrid they just 
Who have their signings been? Can you remind me? Is David Alaba and David Alaba? That's it. <laughs> yeah. That's it. So basically, yeah. their loan players are coming back, like Odin, Garden, Sebastian. Yeah, yeah exactly. More. And their academy exactly. players, Antonio Blanco. Yeah, yeah. So I don't see that any of those players really moving the needle that much for them. Um, you know, Odegaard is, he certainly has the potential, but he's sort of becoming one of these guys that's just, you, we always speak of his potential. Yes, he did well at Real Sociedad, but I don't know. Does anyone do well at Arsenal these days? That's another question, I guess. So maybe I'm being harsh on him. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know about Real Madrid. I think that they definitely need to add to their attack a little bit more because Vinicius Jr. is one of those players that's all pace and a lot of misses. Uh, Rodrigo looks good, but he didn't really get as many opportunities as I would have liked to have seen under Zidane. So I think it could be another difficult season for Real Madrid. Um, I, I just I don't see a world where Ancelotti does much better than Zidane did with this group of players. All right, Adrian. So talking about clubs, um, we have a huge Man United fan base in our group. So they had a question. Uh, Man United recently signed Sancho. Like it was a huge pursuit, right? They recently signed Sancho and then uh, Shaw and Maguire. They were really uh, good in the Euros. And so with all these players performing well, and how can Man United line up in the upcoming Premier League season with Van de Beek and Sancho and what? Like, can they win the Premier League? Um, so I think that Sancho will be an automatic starter, but I think Donny van de Beek, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with him. Um, I don't know if it's a Solskjaer thing. I don't know if it's a training thing, an adjustment thing to England. It's really difficult to say because he was such an excellent player at Ajax, as we saw, you know, in the Champions League. And if you caught any of their Eredivisie matches, yeah. and I think he had actually agreed to terms to go to Real Madrid. And now he might be wishing that he had done so with how little opportunities he got at Manchester United. Um, so I think that as far as how do you line this team up, I think that Pogba has to be in there. I think that I think the back line is a lock already, you know, Wambasaka. Lindelof, Maguire, and Luke Shaw. That's a lock already. Um, it's the midfield that's a bit of a question in, you know, do you put, because Fred and McTominay, they actually look decent together, but they don't offer much going forward. And then you put Pogba and Bruno Fernandes next to each other. It's just, it's, it's a little bit difficult to get that balance. But if, let's say they're playing with a single pivot, it's probably going to be McTominay and then, or, or Fred, and then Pogba ahead of him, Bruno Fernandes in the middle, Sancho on the right, Rashford on the left. Um, and then who do you want as your, as your striker? That's the question. What do you guys think? Who do you guys see as the, as the top striking option? Because I don't think that is Martial. Cavani. Cavani. You probably have Cavani. Yeah. Cavani yeah. still has, in I guess, one or two seasons max. I think so. And I think and that... Cavani was really good in the Copa America as well with Uruguay. Yeah. So that's something that I didn't, I didn't, actually get to pick up on because I missed every single Uruguay match but Cavani is a player that has become sort of a reference for other strikers so I think that you know he showed towards the tail end of the season that he still got it um you do always wonder you know if the body will hold up and everything but I think that I think that ultimately he would be the choice so yeah if you go with Rashford on the left Sancho on the right Cavani through the middle Bruno behind them um, Pogba next to him or just slightly behind him and then either McTominay or Fred in the midfield that looks like a pretty attractive attacking side to me um, and then Luke Shaw running up and down the left flank it's uh, it's certainly exciting now do I think that Sancho automatically makes them a content or a, uh, a title favorite I wouldn't say so but they're definitely going to be more competitive and I can see them you know getting another second place or something like that I mean do you see Sancho starting as a right winger there Sancho as a right winger I don't think so it works the rightest way because he's he has mostly played as a as a number ten or left winger at uh, uh, Borussia Dortmund as an inside forward. How would yeah. he suit to that role? Yeah, so he he used to get played on the right, or I think he's one of those players that could sort of play across the three at the in the attack. Um, so I think that he will be utilized on the right because that's sort of a position that United fans have been begging for. Is let's get a legitimate right winger. Um, so I think I would assume that he would get utilized there. And to answer the previous question about Donny van de Beek, I, again, I just don't, I don't know how he gets into the side, um, which is a shame, but will he get ahead of Pogba? No. Will he get ahead of Bruno? No. 
<sighs> will he be played as sort of like an eight or a six? Maybe he can do that, but it's sort of a shame and it's a, it's a misutilization of his, of his uh, strengths, I think. Um, because at Ajax, he was getting forward all the time. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that Sancho, to answer your question, will be used on the right. Maybe right if they... The squad, I guess. Yeah, maybe if, if, if they want to give Bruno some rest, he'll be played through the middle because that's another issue that they need to look at is how many matches he played in the last season and a half at Manchester United. And it showed, it showed in Euro 2020. I think that he looked a little bit leggy. He looked a bit tired and he was largely ineffectual in the tournament. So yeah, I think that he could be utilized either centrally or on the right with Sancho, that is. And even uh, Varane is being linked with uh, Man United as well. So, mm-hmm. do you think they have enough to like finally win the Premier League uh, to compete with the likes of uh, City, Chelsea, or even Liverpool? Do you think they have enough? Um, yeah, I mean, if you bring in Varane and you bring in Sancho, it's hard to say that they don't. But Varane is another defender who I think he's a bit streaky, isn't he? You know, we saw Varane without Sergio Ramos at times looks like he can be a weak link in the centre-back position. Um, so... If Harry Maguire is going to be the guy at the back and Varane just has to worry about defending and not organizing and all of that, then I think that he can absolutely be a quality signing. But I I do think that people, while I think that Victor Lindelof has some deficiencies, I think that people are really, really harsh on him. And he's shown, you know, whether at Euro or with United in the past season or so, that he's still a very, very good defender. Um, But does Varane make them a league favorite? No. Is it a possibility that they could win the league? Of course, but it's going to be dependent on whether what Liverpool we see. And if Liverpool's attack can click again like they used to, because they certainly weren't last season, they labored. Um, if Liverpool can defend again, you know, with Van Dyke coming back, um, that's another big question mark. And what kind of Manchester City we'll see and what kind of signings we'll see from, from Manchester City if they're going to bring in a Harry Kane or a Jack Grealish or something. So there's still a lot of a lot of variables, but Sancho and Varane absolutely improve Manchester United, and it's going to be a question of what Manchester City and Liverpool do to sort of react to that. So, I would like to move on to Bundesliga, and since I'm a Bayern fan, and some of them have asked this question, Bayern has won the nine consecutive league this season, and it's a very common question, like we hear from almost all non-Bayern fans that how good would have this Bayern team be if we were playing in some other league. So what are your opinions on this question? How would have this Bayern team played if it played in Premier League or La Liga or any other league excluding the Bundesliga? I mean, I think that Bayern has shown with the amount of times that they've gone to England and you know, London yeah. is theirs, basically. They've shown that they can compete in the English Premier League, that they can compete with these English sides. So I don't think that Bayern would have... I think, you know, if you were to take a five-season spread, I think that you could peg Bayern in there as winning it at least once or twice or something like that. I think that Bayern has one of the better teams in Europe as far as looking at it from a squad. Um, I'm really interested to see what they do with Julian Nagelsmann, though. I'm sure that I'm sure that you're also very excited uh, to see what that's going to look like. Um, it it was a bit risky transfer because we paid uh, one of the highest transfer fees for a coach, and yeah. we're looking for something long term. So let's see. Yeah, and he he definitely it's going to be a shakeup. I mean, the biggest thing I'm interested in seeing is that he typically plays like a three at the back, collapses into a five when they're defensively. Yeah. So that's not really Bayern's style. Bayern's most success has come from that 4-2-3-1 over and over and over again, right? So we'll see if it's Nagelsmann that adjusts or if there's going to be a shakeup for Bayern in their shape and how they react to that. Because once Kovac was in there, it it, it wasn't a good reaction really, was it? No. <laughs> but uh, since you brought up Kovac, Kovac actually did good with Monaco. I think they ended up mm-hmm. third or fourth in League One. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Kovac is certainly a a good manager, but just not like, a fit. Uh, after he underperformed with us, he received a lot of hate from from some yeah. fans, but he did perform good with Monaco. I was happy. Yeah, absolutely. He did do well there, and he he just showed that it just 
you know, sometimes it's not a fit. It's just a matter, a matter of not being a fit at a certain club. And Bayern has this very, uh, they have a very distinct sort of identity with how they play. And um, it just wasn't the Kovac way. <laughs> so, um, finalizing on Bundesliga, what do you think, like, this year's Bundesliga will shape up like the table? Um. Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, because we've seen it's been an absolute managerial merry-go-round of the Bundesliga, hasn't it? So I think that Marco Rosa at Borussia Dortmund is a very interesting prospect because I loved what he did at Salzburg. He may, he's sort of helped Salzburg become what they are today um, and what Jesse Marsh was able to carry on with. And that's another one, Jesse Marsh going to RB Leipzig now. This is, this is a manager that plays a very, very attacking style of football, and I hope that RB Leipzig really give it a good run this time because, you know, the past couple of seasons, they've pushed Bayern a little bit, but ultimately tail off and just don't really have what they, what it takes to get it over the line. Um, and Bayern, it's not that Bayern have been perfect in the last couple of seasons. They've left some opportunities for other teams to take advantage of their mistakes, but it's just the chasing pack hasn't done so now with, with Borussia Dortmund, with Marco Rosa, um, I mean, they lose Jaden Sancho, but he was very hit or miss in the first half of last season. Anyway, I think he was very much distracted with the deal that fell through last summer. Um, but Marco Rosa did great things at Salzburg. He did relatively well with Borussia Mönchengladbach, considering, you know, what he had at his disposal. It wasn't the greatest squad in the world. There are certainly talents there, but yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be, he's one of my one of my friends, Manuel Veth, is a is a journalist for Transfermarkt, and he talks about how Marco Rosa definitely has that sort of Borussia Dortmund DNA, and that's maybe something that Lucien Favre didn't have, and and uh, so I'm very interested in seeing Borussia Dortmund, but I am wary that it could be another all this hope, and then they ultimately fall flat again. Um, RB Leipzig, Jesse Marsh, I'm a big fan of Jesse Marsh. I hope that he does well there, and uh, I just really like his attitude towards football. And I really like the style that he plays is sort of that all out attacking sort of style. So I hope that Bayern really has uh, decent competitors. But if you were to ask me the most likely outcome at the end of all of it, I would say that Bayern winning it would be the most likely outcome. But there is sort of that variable of how Nagelsmann, like we just talked about, how his system Will it change or will he go with the three at the back? How will the players react to it? So it's, it's more, it feels more up in the air this season than it has in the past. But ultimately, I think Bayern still have the squad to beat. Yeah, we and, need uh, to win this time because it will be the 10th consecutive one and also yeah. the first title for Nagelsmann because nine even Juventus has. So creating a history will be very good. Yeah, of course. That's not even a too much of an ask for Bayern, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I, uh, since the transfer window is almost over, uh, barely a, a few days are remaining and uh, almost the deals are almost done, most of the deals. What do you think is the most important and the, the transfer which you are looking forward to in the coming season? Um, the one I'm most looking forward to. Um, it's not going to happen this summer, but I'm whoever wins the Erling Haaland sweepstakes is, is going to be very interesting. Seeing him, you know... <clears throat> He, even if he, like last season felt like a down season for him. And I think he scored what, like 27 goals or something like that in the Bundesliga. Um, I think, it was, yeah, I think it was, I know Andre Silva scored 28 and he scored more than Holland. So it was, it was very close, but seeing him at, a, at another team in another league, that's a transfer that I'm very much looking forward to because he's such an interesting player and in that he's tall but he's great with the ball at his feet. He's extremely fast. He's, uh, you know, he's shockingly fast for how big he is. Um, and I think that he's just, he has that, that elite sort of mentality that I liken to, you know, a Zlatan or a Cristiano Ronaldo, where it's just everything for the win type of thing. So I think that Erling Holland and where he ends up will be very interesting. I know that you guys are probably hoping that it that it ends up at Barcelona, but we'll see. There's the, the finances Honestly, are just a mystery. Uh, I don't even think so that it's going to be a 2022 affair. Uh, clubs like Chelsea and Manchester United already have the money to uh, yeah. get him in. So you just, you just can't see anything. He might move to Chelsea this summer. Yeah, it's true. It's true. There yeah. could be some sort of surprise where out of nowhere, Bruce D. Dortmund accepts a 120 to 150, yeah, whatever it is. Money. 
Yeah, exactly. So that could happen. I mean, they say that it won't happen, but ultimately they have a price. And if that price is met, then he'll go. And so, you know, we've seen Chelsea in the past break transfer record. Well, this wouldn't break a transfer record because Neymar destroyed that. But um, still, it would be it would be a, an insane transfer. Yeah, seeing him in the Premier League would be interesting, especially with his affiliations with Manchester City from his dad and, you know, him saying in the past that he'd want to be there or whatever. But uh, yeah, I think uh, Erling Haaland, that's the transfer that I'm most looking forward to in the future, for sure. And the final question I would love to ask you is, who do you think is a usual favorite for the coming season? The coming season? Um, I think that you can't sleep on Chelsea still because Thomas Tuchel, what he did in that side from you know January onward is it's pretty amazing. He completely changed them. He changed their style of play, everything, and it was successful in doing so. So he's he's proven himself now finally, and I think that Chelsea is. You know, you give him a season and you give him a transfer market and let's see what he can do. So I think that you cannot sleep on Chelsea. They have a very, very good squad, um, especially when you see, you know, like Christensen in the summer that he had. I think that back line will just be stronger. Rudiger is getting better all the time at Chelsea, it seems, um, which was a surprise, actually. And so I think Chelsea is obviously one of them. Um, as for Italian sides, I can't really see. Maybe there would be like a fairy tale run for Atalanta or something like that, but I can't really see any of them being a favorite at this point. Um, maybe Inter, you know, maybe under Enzaghi, maybe Inter can have a better, if they get more luck with the draw, maybe Inter can have a better run in the Champions League as well. As for Spanish sides, I think that, um, you know, with all the, like, if we just ignore everything that goes on with like the registry and the finances of Barcelona, as for the squad itself and what we saw from Kuman towards the tail end of last season, I think that Barcelona is a side that I'll be keeping my eye on for sure, because I, I, there's something about them that just, it feels like they're due for a better run. I don't, wouldn't say that they're a favorite, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they made the semifinals or something like that. And then of course there's always Bayern, Bayern and PSG. <laughs> I think those two are the, if I was to put it down to three, I'd say Bayern, PSG and Chelsea as sort of the top contenders for the UCL. Number one being, uh, for me, I would say it, it might be PSG at this point, you know, Donnarumma, Hakimi, yeah. Sergio Ramos, um, yeah, Pochettino finally getting like a full season with them. I think that PSG is definitely, out there. yeah, exactly. Totally. Like, yeah. So I mean, most, most of the checkbox are take, um, the squad they have currently is totally worthy of a UCL title. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that I think that PSG might be the favorite at this point. It's just a matter of it all sort of clicking for them, you know. Mm-hmm. Also, that Barca part also made my day. <laughs> I'm proud of that. <laughs> I mean, look, they uh, with Messi signing up, assuming that he does, which it seems very likely. Um, the signings that they made, having Aguero, if Aguero can stay healthy, that's a big sort of asterisk next to it. I think that Barcelona has an interesting side. The only question mark for me is really the, the back line and how that will click together. So, Adrian, this was the end of um, all the questions that we had uh, got from, like, we got from our community. And um, I, would, I would like to end this on a question, like, uh, as we are all amateurs and we have started this podcast just for a small, tight-knit community, what would be your suggestion for us to move forward from here? Um, <laughs> I'm an amateur too. Uh, <laughs> but I would say just keep at it. If you guys are serving a niche, that is always, you know, finding a niche audience and serving that and building a community off of it. That is always the sort of the best advice that I can give someone. Um, so I think that, you know, it's it, consistency is an aspect of it, but serving a niche is a really, really big aspect of it. And uh, yeah, I think that that would be just about it. I don't know what your guys' presence is like on YouTube or anything like that, but, you know, having some videos edited together and um, that always helps because the visual side of things, especially with podcasts, I think that can really amp it up in a sense you know you're not just sitting there you have a visual to look at as well so i think if you guys were to continue on with your consistency and uh serving a niche of some sort whether that be you know for me it was explaining concepts in depth and giving the context around them so that was my sort of avenue that i went down and so if you can find something like that um whether it's you know covering uh asian football maybe i don't know if you guys have an interest in asian football but if it was 
I don't know how big that scene is on the internet, but if you could serve to that, and if you, you of course have to have an interest of it in it, but if you could serve that, then maybe that would be an avenue that you could go down, but ultimately consistency, passion, and uh, serving a niche are the sort of the recipes for success, I think. Well, as you mentioned about your roots of the rivalry series, and let me tell you that it's one of my favorites uh, on your channel. And a lot of times it has happened that, you know, like people who don't follow football a lot, um, they ask me, what should I start with? And I give them your Mohan Bagan versus East Bengal rivalry video. <laughs> so there will be a lot of fans who might know your voice and they have started football with your videos. So thanks a lot for that, Adrian. Yeah, of course. That was, that was really fun. It's always interesting sort of, going outside of Europe, um, you know, doing that one, the Mohan Bagan and Bengal, and then uh, doing like Al Ali and Zamalek from Egypt as well. That was really interesting mm-hmm. getting into South America. Yeah, it's it's fun. There's there's so many stories out there that can be told. That's sort of uh, my mission in this upcoming season is to do more of those roots of the rivalry in different areas of the world. We'll definitely be looking forward to that. Um, Thanks a lot, Adrian. Thanks for making it. And thank you guys for your time. And we'll see you in the next one. Stay safe and see ya. Bye.